Welcome to Brain Nevat. Today we have a really unusual show. We have Francesca Minerva, who is the author of The Ethics of Cryonics. Is it immoral to be immortal? Francesca, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah, so we can imagine the case of a person who has a terminal disease that is going to bring them to death relatively soon and it's going to affect their their cognitive capacities especially so like you can imagine Parkinson's disease Alzheimer's disease brain cancer so all these conditions that are degenerative and that get worse and uh, there is no therapy at the time where they live which is actually the time where we live so the only option available to them is to be cryopreserved before the disease degenerates so much that there is not much left of their um, personal identity of you know of their um, conscious memories and all their um, um, capacities and uh, this would be so at a quite an early stage after the diagnosis hopefully so the question is should this person be allowed and could this person make a rational decision by choosing to be cryopreserved which is stopping posing the whole functioning of the body pretty much every cell in the body gets posed in ultra low temperatures in the hope that in the future they will be revived. And at this point in the future, there will be a therapy for um, the disease that is killing them, Alzheimer, Parkinson, or cancer. And uh, hopefully they'll, their brain and their body, but most importantly, their brain, be too affected by this disease so that it's possible for them to be cured and to be restored to a state of health that they were at the moment that they decided to be cryopreserved. This seems to be quite a weird and crazy decision to many, but it seems that there have been a few real cases of people who opted for that. It was like young people, older people. And the reason is that in absence of any other alternative, it seems that the only hope for these patients is to try to survive or to at least not die in, in a what we mean by dying now because according to some definition of that cryonics is that but we can talk more about that later so the only option is to be cryopreserved at the moment in most countries it's not really possible to have this option i call cryotanasia and i published a paper about this with Anders sunberg which is euthanasia with the idea of being cryopreserved so it's quite different from euthanasia which you're pretty much trying to escape the unbearable suffering that a illness is about to bring upon you. In this case, in the case of cryotanasia, well, you're partly trying to escape the suffering, but that's not the main reason. You're actually trying to escape death. So the idea is that you want to avoid to die. And the only option available is to be cryopreserved. And because maybe, hopefully in the future, there will be a way to, to bring you back to life. I imagine there's a lot of questions to consider but one of them is a metaphysical question. So you already raised the first half of what I want to ask, which is when the person with Parkinson's, presume, let's presume he's very old, let's say 80 years old, when he dies, well, firstly, does he die? And then later, the person who comes back, is that him again? So he's died and then he has been resurrected? Or is that another person? Important for that question is, it seems like this person in the future will have a lot of distinguishing factors from the Parkinson patient in the past. So for one, I imagine this person in the future will have a younger body. 
So they would wait to resurrect him for a time when they could perhaps give him a new body or make his body much younger. His brain presumably would be quite different. Parkinson's affects the brain in quite systematic ways. So in order to wake him up, that brain or in order to wake up that person, that brain would have to be very different. And perhaps that's sufficient to say, well, that's a different person's brain. So is it possible for for the Parkinsonian patient to escape death that way? Perhaps the Parkinsonian patient has died, but someone else has been born in the future. Right. So it in part has to do with the definition of consciousness that, that you embrace in part the question of whether you can survive cryo, cryonics in general. And that's for all patients, if you can pose it. And uh, I believe that it is possible to, to survive this kind of treatment if you can re- retrieve large part of your memories and personality traits and thoughts. So for the Parkinson patient, if the treatment of cryopreservation is performed very late, so when the, pers- the, the patient has stopped being themselves already, then yes, the patient wouldn't, com- wouldn't come back as the old self. But that's because they were cryopreserved already when they were not themselves. Like this is particularly visible and noticeable with patients with Alzheimer's disease. We know that, you know, their relatives say, oh, it's a different person. And, you know, patients with Alzheimer's disease, they don't really remember who they are, they don't remember a lot of people around them. So they're not themselves already. That's why I was saying like, maybe you should intervene at an early stage where all these memories, which are really big part of what we are, like if we forget completely who we are, we delete, erase our memories. It's very difficult to, to feel like ourselves. Then I would say it's too late, but it's, it's, it's not because of cryonics, it's because of the disease. The other question is whether cryonics would damage the, the, the memories. So we don't know how much information can be retrieved after cryonics. We would imagine that the hope is that all of the information can be retrieved. So like it's like waking up after a long sleep. Yes, I slept, but every morning I remember exactly what I did the day before and who are my loved ones and what is my job about. So that's the hope for cryonics. But if that didn't work out, there are various hypotheses. So in one case, the extreme opposite case, like no memory is retrieved, no personal personality trait is retrieved, then I would say that cryonics failed because it just body from the past to the future or to the present, that it's just the body. The person is no longer there because she has lost completely all her memories and who she was. And then there are all the intermediate cases. So what we say is like, 30% good enough, or do we need 50% or 60%? And that's an empirical question. Like, we don't know. We know that people who have surgery and have lose like half the brain, they can usually survive and have continuity with the previous self. So I think a safe bet would be to say that if cryonics allowed us to bring from the past to the future 50% of our memories and personality traits, then it would be successful, 50% or more. It's hard to tell what happens under 50%. That's an empirical question. And on, on answering that question depends whether cryonics can be successful or not. 
So I wonder about a different kind of survivorship. So we've thought about physical continuity and you might say your cerebral continuity, the idea that you've got certain memories or other kinds of psychological states. In South Africa, there's this saying that we are who we are through other people. And we can imagine someone who is cryogenically frozen for, let's say, a couple of hundred years. And everyone that they ever knew, every institution that they were connected with ceases to exist. In some senses, they're a bit of a time traveler. They now are resurrected in this, this future world, which bears no resemblances from a past world. And we might think that they are now so dislocated from who they were that they might cease to be who they once were. And you might then think that you have the birth of a new being because who you are is so constituted by your surroundings. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I would think that maybe in part it depends also on the type of culture a person belongs to. I think that some cultures are more centered on relationships and some cultures are more individualistic. One example that comes to mind is that of you know, people who were sent to Australia before, obviously, there were phones or anything, and they had to start a new life by themselves from zero, really. And I imagine that being, you know, retrieved after cryonics would be something like being sent to Australia at a time when there is no internet and no phone and not be able to communicate with your family and friends. So would you say, well, would that change you well it would definitely change you right but would you say that you're no longer yourself would that be the same as dying i don't think it would be the same as dying it would definitely be a transforming experience but i would still be myself i would still be my memories i will still have my memories i will still have the same preferences and and thoughts and kind of way of going about things so i think you can survive this kind of of, of episode uh, insofar as Yes, these key elements are, are maintained. But I think that a lot of people, me included, when they think of the reasons why they wouldn't want to be cryopreserved, really think about this kind of scenario. You wake up in a world where everything is completely different. You don't know everyone. You don't know how things work. And uh, how, how are you going to enjoy that? Why would you do that? And that's I think that's really good point like why would you want that life and I have friends who have signed up for cryonics that say that sounds fine to me like you can make new friends and my excitement for the future is so great I'm so looking forward to see how the world will be like that I don't care about not really meeting any of the people I know but for some other people that's so scary or like the downside of it would be so bad that they say okay no cryonics really doesn't sound desirable to me because it's really like waking up on a new planet. We don't know anybody. And that seems like the most dystopian future I can imagine for myself. That's why I think, yeah, it really depends a lot on how you are. Like if you're this kind of really enthusiastic person who really doesn't have any problems socializing and thinks they can really build new meaningful relationships, no matter where they go, then I think cryonics more likely to be the thing for you but if you don't have the kind of personality maybe you're less inclined i can completely agree that personality seems very important if you're the kind of person who's optimistic about the future i'm a science fiction writer i actually write dystopian science fiction so it generally isn't so great in the future but i'm still very curious to be there so i would love to be cryogenically frozen one of our previous guests david benatar 
thinks that it's better not to have been born. I wonder whether, so his position is that once you are born, you shouldn't commit suicide, barring certain circumstances, but all things being equal, you should continue living. Now, it seems like you are making the choice to be born again. It seems, I think, when you decide to be cryogenically frozen, would David Benatar say that because life is awful, that you objectively speaking, not dependent on your desires here. So you might, he would say, have inappropriate desires to wake up in the future, but he'd still want to say there's an objective fact of the matter about whether you should be cryogenically frozen and live another life. And I'm guessing he would say you shouldn't because life is awful, regardless of when you wake up. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would be actually very interested in his answer. I really like David Benatar, by the way. He's a great philosopher. I I don't know. On one hand, it depends also on how one perceives cryonics, because on one hand, it could seem like just a treatment for a disease. Like if they said, well, you have cancer, we don't know how to cure you, but we'll put you in a coma for five years and uh, then we'll wake you up and we'll let you know, you know what's going on probably will be able to fix you in five years. Well, I think most people would say, oh, well, obviously you should agree to go in a comatose state for five years to keep living maybe 30, 40, 50 years in the future. And I would guess that Benatar as well would say, yeah, if the treatment for your cancer is to be in a comatose state for five years, then you should take it. But if you think of cryonics as something radically different, as like dying and resuscitating, then I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, what, he, what, what he would say about it because I'm not sure how he sees cryonics. And I think that the, the fact that cryonics is at the moment so complicated and uh, we don't really know if it's going to work makes it look like it's an extremely different treatment from any other treatment I ever used before. But I think what's going to happen is that we're going to start cryopreserving people for short times, as indeed... It seems like they started doing like this preserving, like posing patients for a few minutes uh, when they have to do some extreme surgery. That's, you know, in some hospitals, they can um, leave them in this state for a few minutes. So maybe it's going to develop from there and then it's just going to expand. So then it will seem like a different kind of treatment. But I also wonder whether it, it's the same as life extension in general. So the goal of cryonics, I have to say, it's to live forever, at least for a lot of people who want to do cryonics. It's not that they just want to add 10, 20 years to their lifespan. They want to add 1,000 or 500,000 years to, to their lifespan. And the motto is you have to, link, to live long enough to live forever because the idea that in the future, there will be treatments that will allow you to, to be rejuvenated and to live possibly forever in good health and while you still feel and look uh, youthful. So imagine that there is this treatment available, like each of us can take every year one pill with no side effects that just rejuvenates you internally so that we always stay at the age of 20 or 30 when we are like really strong, have no well very unlikely to have any serious disease. Under those circumstances, rejuvenations and living forever would feel way more standard therapy. So like everybody's taking it, why shouldn't I? And then we would end up, you know, living thousands of years or maybe forever without, without really choosing to live in forever, but just like taking a pill once per year 
to maintain your state of health. If that pill were available, I think a lot of people would be willing to, to live in forever. But if you ask people now, hey, are you willing to do cryonics and then do the rejuvenation and then do this and that? That seems like such an enormous step that pretty much nobody wants to do it. It's like, it's freakish, it's dystopian, it's just for a science fiction book or movie. So I think it in part has to do with how abrupt the process is and with how used we, ha we are to this kind of uh, process. So if you start telling people, oh, like living forever, most people are really against it. For reason I'm not sure about, because I would love to live forever, at least never aging. But when you tell them, okay, would you take these steps actually to achieve that goal? Then, you know, they, they change their mind according to, to what you actually offer. You say, okay, would you take, you know, a pill for not aging and staying the age you are every year? Then they're fine. But then if it's something more radical, they, at some point somebody says, yeah, no, that's too much. Which I think it's a, it's a bias towards <laughs> what would this more medically complex since the results will be pretty much the same. So you either want to never age and live forever or you don't. It should depend on the means required to you. So I don't know if Benatar would also be in favor of living forever once you were born. I think he would be because as you were saying, he's not saying you should kill yourself. But I think this kind of therapy that I really hope will be developed at some point uh, hopefully when I'm still alive, would really pose a lot of interesting questions. So I suppose a couple of responses that Professor Benatar can make. The one is to say that under the ordinary circumstances, one of the reasons why it's wrong to bring new people into the world is that there's no choice in the matter. They're being forcibly brought into existence. And he thinks that existence is going to be bad for you. And one of the reasons why he thinks it is bad for you is because you will die. So he thinks that uh, it would be better, all things being equal, to be mortal. And he thinks one of the reasons why life is bad is that we're not. So if you think that you can survive through chronics, then it might be the case that you are being reborn in some form, but not in the form of a totally new being. You're not wronging a new being. You are choosing to be reborn. So there's no kind of uh, wrong there. I wonder about this idea about the desirability of immortality. So what are some of the concerns that people have about living forever? And are there some distinctions to be drawn between, let's say, living forever under conditions where you get more and more sick and more and more frail versus this idea of leading a life where you are at optimal health for eternity? That's an important distinction because a lot of people, when you ask them, oh, we'd like to live forever, they imagine like becoming more and more decrepit and unable to do things and that's that's definitely a kind of life extension that nobody wants because we can see already even the healthiest 100 year old doesn't have as much strength and capacity to do things as a 20 year old that's not a good option so what we really would want and should want i think is being able to stay young and you know growing older without without really aging. I think that would be the best, the best thing that we could possibly do and wish upon ourselves. And um, I find it really strange. A lot of philosophers, when I wrote the book, I realized a lot of philosophers are written against it, saying that, yeah, no, it would be incredibly boring. Life would be meaningless. We only can attribute value to things that are limited. So if life were limitless, we wouldn't be able to attribute a value to it. 
So the idea is that yeah, it would be really burdensome for us to live. I find it like really strange. I tried really to understand these objections, but they don't really resonate with me. I think that living forever would be great. At least like living for much, much, much longer without aging. I think aging is the worst thing that happens to humans. Like there is really nothing worse. And I don't understand why we're not doing much more to prevent aging, which is the source of most over suffering. Like we're really trying to fix small things. So we're fixing Parkinson's, we're fixing cancer. But all these diseases that kill us, apart from accidents, they are the largest number of cases a side effect of aging. So we should really tackle aging as our priority when it comes to improving human well-being instead of all the other small things that kill us by accident in the sense that, yes, there are things that happen to people who live long enough to get sick. So the point is really that we should try to stay healthy to enjoy our lives. If we had that, I don't think life would become really boring very easily. I think our perception of our life would change. Yes, it would be, it's interesting. I don't know how it radically would change. Like now we have a set idea of milestones that we reach a certain ages. We do a certain kind of lifestyle for 20s, then 30s or more oriented towards building a career in the family. And then at some point we're more oriented about I don't know, gardening and doing other things and, um, and so on and so forth. And of course, there are huge differences among individuals. But it seems like most humans, regardless of the culture they live and everything, they tend to have these milestones. And I wonder if these milestones are due to the fact that, yeah, after you live for 30 years, you are tired of partying and you really want to do something else. Or um, it's just because your body starts aging. So, you know, partying at 20 is different from partying at 30. I keep saying that, like, I felt like I couldn't really drink alcohol anymore at 27. That's where I quit because I felt like my body couldn't really um, party and drink anymore after 27. Uh, it was a long time ago now. So something changes in the body at some point and maybe you can't really stay up all night dancing. Or maybe it's because people start looking at us like, yeah, yeah, you're 60, what are you doing in this club dancing? So we feel like there is social pressure for not doing things that, that don't look age appropriate for us. Or maybe it's a mix of things. But imagine like looking 20 forever, even if you are 500. You have the same level of energy and nobody would able to to spot the value of a hundred. So you have much more freedom. You can do the gardening, uh, you can do the traveling, you can do the hiking, you can do the clubbing. Nobody can tell you you're, this is not your place and you have all the energy in the world to do that. So I think our outlook towards life would be, would be quite different. And maybe all these milestones and things that are considered age appropriate would be shuffled. But it doesn't mean life would be meaningless or worse. I think it just gives us a lot more opportunities and we could live different lives. Like, oh, okay, now I've been getting my degree and working for 20 years, I have money enough for hiking for 10 years because I have the energy, but it's not how life works now. Like, unfortunately, I, th I think, because we have to, I don't know, get a degree or find our job and then we have to work. And then at the time where we can really enjoy uh, the money we saved or whatever we have achieved, although we are too old to do it, like, what are you going to do? 
I mean, you're too tired or like you, you know, have something. So on one hand, I'm looking forward to retire. On the other hand, like, yeah, maybe I won't enjoy retirement uh, as much as I would do now. So I think that like living without aging would really allow us to have all sorts of amazing experiences and changing life many times. And I think it's wrong to think that we get bored. Since the internet was invented, I don't think anyone has been bored anymore. It's really difficult to get bored. And also, like, boredom is not really bad. So I say that nobody's bored anymore. And some people might be good, but I can remember. I was bored before the internet was invented. And I spent a lot of time getting bored. But that was, like, really creative in a way. So, like, boredom is not the thing we should fear the most. So, you know, even if we got bored living a very long life, that wouldn't be tragic. But I'm pretty sure that if somebody didn't want to get bored, there will be enough cat videos on the internet in the future that, you know, they can do that for a long time. And maybe there will be experiments machine where you can plug yourself and and live like 10 years as Napoleon and, you know, live all your life as Napoleon. So I think it would be quite quite fun and yeah even though I tried really hard to understand these objections to life extension or like mm, immortality I'm not sure I understand them assuming that we would have the option dying when we want to because you know maybe at some point we want to so that option should be available my intuitions uh, align with yours I would take that pull every year but what's interesting is I polled my family on this and all of the older generations said, I would not take that pull. And I said, but, but hold on, let's assume the pull rejuvenates you. So you won't stay at your current age. You can be young and healthy and suppose it fixes all your ailments. Wouldn't you take it? And they still said no. And then I polled more and more people of my grandparents' generation and they all said no. And I couldn't understand this. They gave a number of arguments. So the one was kind of a romanticization of death. So this idea that death is not bad, death is perhaps even good. Um, and that if your life lacks death, you mentioned this earlier, it might lack meaning, but it might lack other things too. It might lack, for example, a narrative endpoint. And they say, well, they'd feel kind of stuck in this endless process. The Hindu conception of the ultimate goal is to stop being reborn. They see rebirth as a terrible thing and you, you want to end this endless uh, rebirthing cycle. And they seem to have a similar view. The other thing they said was, would it be you if you woke up from cryogenic stasis? They seem to think that it wouldn't be you if you kept taking the pull. So no cryogenic stasis, no death per se, no discrete event of death, no heart stopping. Yet they think that if my brain is rewound 20 years and my body is rewound 20 years, that there's some essential part of me that's then missing. The other, the other thought they had was that with, with aging comes growth and you describe these different life phases. So they took the view that if you always had the body of a 20-year-old, you would have a, the mind of a 20-year-old. You would never grow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a possibility. We don't know because nobody has done that. It's a possibility that, you know, there is some wisdom that comes with physically changing. Maybe the fact that you become weaker and less healthy forces you to develop in a different way, emotionally and psychologically. So that's 
that's something I can understand, and that's that's something we can we can deny. Might might be the case. Though, I mean, it's also like quite subjective. I think there are, you know, people who in a short lifetime had experiences that, you know, made them way more mature and, you know, and other people had a very easy life in which like nothing really happened. Maybe they, they didn't become as mature and wise as, as other people in their 20s. But I can imagine that there is something about learning about your physical decline that maybe teaches you something. Well, that might be a valuable lesson, but is it really more valuable than being young and living for hundreds of thousands of years or forever? Not for me. Obviously, you have to compromise on something. And yes, you might lose that. But I, I think I, will, I can live with that. Then I think about not being yourself just by taking a pill. The only case I could imagine that happening, like human memory was limited. So maybe you can remember your past and who you were when you were a child and you know how life was when you were five or six or ten, if you live up to 100 or 200 or 500. But maybe there is a limit to the amount of information that we can store in our brain. And we do like, and it's important to us to see ourselves as characters of a story. So this is our, our story. If we started losing pieces of this story, for all of a sudden I couldn't remember my life with, before I turned 20, that would be rather odd. I would say that I'm losing pieces of myself. And, and maybe, as in the case of cryonics, if you lost a lot of it, then, you know, maybe you would actually be a different person. But again, we don't know that for sure. Of course, you know, nobody has lived a thousand years to tell us whether they remember their 10th birthday. They maybe would, they maybe wouldn't. Maybe we would still have a basic structure, which I think would be enough. But just like be very odd to forget, you know, the first 200 years of your life <laughs> in which, you know, a lot of things happen and then just remember the last 300 years. But nobody has done that. So we don't know if there is a limit and we don't know how bad it would be. I guess that, yes, in a sense, if you really forget a lot of what happened in your past, you lose the continuity with your beginning. And that's important to your personal identity, like to have these connections at different stages, at least like some connection with previous stages. But I would, I'm not sure whether that would be worse than death. I will still take that over death, probably, most likely. So there's an excellent graphic novel called After Death, where the idea is that bodies can persist indefinitely, but that your memory is only limited for 100 years. And people sort of record their prior selves in journals and they can look back on it. But there's a sense in which you're disjuncted from your prior self. But we might think that that's what's happening anyway. We might think that as we naturally grow old, we start to forget you know, who you were when you were younger, that our preferences shift in dramatic ways, and that maybe what you have is that you are not the same person as you were when you were five years old. You owe your current existence to that separate being. And that really what you have are these arcing lives in some kind of body that is recognized by others as the same person, but isn't really. I wonder about the kinds of changes we would see if people 
um, did have this option of immortality. So it seems that there are certain kinds of things that we would do very differently. As you point out, we have a certain trajectory for our lives and we think of things that need to be done by these stages. And we might make quite bad choices because of that. So for example, you could marry someone um, because you think, well, I'm 35 and I've only got so many years left and this person's around, so let's get married. And it's only going to be for the next uh, 30, 40 years. And you might think that if you were immortal, that the idea of marrying for life would start to look very, very strange and that you might have different kinds of relational setups. You might think as well that your relationship with children would be very different. If you think, well, I'm only going to have these two or three children because my life is limited, you would treat them differently to if you thought you could sire thousands of children over an eternal life. So I, I wonder whether it would be a fundamentally different world and one in which to some extent, it's hard to imagine it. So as you say, one of the complaints is that it would be boring because we would wind up doing the same things over and over. But there might be some sense in which we're able to compound our knowledge over time to create things that we have not yet fathomed. And there are all these riches that we have yet to experience because we can't really conceive of what an immortal life would be like. That there's some sort of limitation in thinking about, you know, the Bernard Williams, well, you'd eventually get bored because you'd be seeing the same sorts of stuff. They're imagining the kind of world that we currently find ourselves in. And I think you're right to say that given how much information has been brought about by the internet, you could never read all of it, given your, your finite lifespan. But in an infinite world, you could. You could have this kind of incredible growth. One of the tragedies, of course, of brilliant minds dying is that there's a, there's a loss. There's only so much that they can shelve out in their writings. And if we thought that their trajectory could keep growing for another 200 years, think about all the other brilliant things that they could come up with. Yeah, so many interesting points there. Yes, so human relationships would probably change. So I guess it would be different to have two children and a thousand children over a lifetime. You would you know, forget the names at some point, probably. I don't know if our brain would evolve that way. So maybe, you know, we wouldn't want to have a lot of children. We wouldn't want to have a lot of partners. And I think it's something would be like really romantic. Like if you really love somebody, maybe you're happy to spend hundreds or thousands of years with them instead of a handful of decades. So maybe they will show a strong commitment. I really want to be with you forever and a minute. So there might be another very romantic perspective on that issue. But I guess we struggle as a species a lot with monogamy already. It seems like a lot of people get bored easily in relationships. They can't even be in the same relationship faithfully for, for a handful of years. So definitely in those cases, it would be very, very difficult. We would have to rethink marriage and divorce. Maybe we should have marriages that last top 100 years or something like that. And then the marriage dissolves and then you need to remarry again, having to go through divorce. And the duties towards people, like you have the duty to take care of your child, but of course you can't be held responsible for taking care of this child for a million years. We would say, okay, parents are responsible for their children for a limited amount of time, then the children have to become autonomous, which is in part what happens now, but I think that to a lesser extent. So yeah, relationships would be, could be, and probably would be quite dramatically affected by this kind of change. What you were saying about, uh, like, People, I don't know, like Einstein, people who really did 
uh, a lot for the world and they know it's like oh why did they die i think that's yeah that's a good case in favor of life's extension because we probably would have benefited from having some people around for longer of course you could have the opposite argument say what about these horrible dictators like it's good it's good that you know hitler died so we really wouldn't want you know life extension at a time where you know hitler was in power so we would have to to have more strict rules about governance and how long can somebody be in power and democracy we would need to make it impossible for someone to rule a country for long, for more than 10 years or 20 years and and things like that so a lot of institutions from marriage to voting for a president and how we see politics should 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 be changed out of yeah necessity and also my like desire to avoid some bad consequences but in this sense i mean i'm not the most optimistic person in the world i am quite optimistic that we would find a way to to fix it also i think that if we started working on life extension we just started doing but really not as much as we should have the change wouldn't be really dramatic so we wouldn't go from living up to 100 years to living a million years in minimum so it would be something like changing and giving us the time to really figure out how to structure society differently it could be that we just find out the way of living forever immediately so that would require quite a lot of thinking about how to do things again but we have quite we are quite smart species so we could figure things out we could find solutions i still believe the the pros would outweigh the uh, the cons maybe one way to think about this question about whether i'll be happier in the future is to think of the future as a plus 5 minus 5 so let's say you think that your happiness can be measured on a scale of 1 to 10 with one being very unhappy and 10 being blissfully happy. If you're at an 8 now and you don't wait until you're old to cryogenically freeze, you ch- cryogenically freeze today. It seems you have a lot to lose, but not too much to gain. So you could go up to a 10 perhaps, but you could go all the way down to a 3 and be very unhappy in the future for various reasons. But if you're starting at a 3 and you're very unhappy today, it seems the only place you can go is up your circumstances today not just health-wise but psychologically seem very important yeah definitely so i i mentioned at the beginning the case of cryotanasia or parkinson or other diseases but i think it might apply also to severe depression clinical depression some forms of depression cannot really be fixed and indeed in belgium and in the netherlands where euthanasia is legal there have been some cases of people who obtained euthanasia for because they were depressed so they didn't have physical illness the head mental illness and the same way i think that we could apply the same concept of cryotanasia to people whose depression cannot be fixed and i think there would be a better option than giving them euthanasia because you can't come back from euthanasia but you hopefully can come back from cryotanasia and especially if if cryonics then we know if we were sure cryonics works we said they using it it could really help people like sometimes lives are because of the circumstances like you maybe have an addiction to something like or something has happened in your environment and you need a break to detach yourself from that environment for a few years and that might be the cure just being out for a few years and then coming back and the environment has changed a bit and might help you 
So you've spoken about it as a way of hitting the pause button um, so that you could escape a bad state of affairs. You can imagine a lot of people saying that the pandemic is one of those states of affairs that they would prefer to be able to avoid. Wake me up when it's over. There's a famous film called Demolition Man where Chronix is used as a, a punishing device. So what you can do is you can take someone who is dangerous and you can contain them, but you avoid some of the, let's say, the moral hazards of imprisonment where that person wastes away in a cell. And you might think, well, what we want to try and do is just remove them from society. They can be brought back into the future and everybody wins. This person hasn't lost any years at the end of their life and we didn't have to deal with them while they were a dangerous entity now. So do you think that there's some kind of future in, in, that, in that way of using cryogenics? I definitely think it could be used as a form of punishment, mild punishment. I think, you know, at least as an option, I would say that criminals should have the option. But if you think like people who have been like really violent towards someone and, you know, they would have to be brought back in society and the victim would have to be exposed to this person a lot. And this would cause them a lot of psychological trauma. You know, freezing them seems like a much better option. Like it will... We won't take any years of your life away from you, but we will bring you back in, you know, 20, 30 years when this person dies or, you know, when this person has overcome their trauma. And I think that would be a better option for the criminal as well, because like, well, prison, it's not posing your life as cryonics does, but it is in a way because you live out of society, you don't see your family. So maybe it should be offered as, as an option, especially for people who commit crime because they have drug problems or other behaviors triggered by the environment that would also, uh, would also help just remove them from this environment that triggers their behaviors and bring them back when the environment has, has changed. I guess it's a very controversial view that I have doubts about the morality of imprisoning anyway, so I'm open to other options. So far, except for Mark's previous question, we've mainly talked about whether you, for your own sake, should cryogenically freeze. Mark questions whether cryogenically freezing someone would help others, for example, removing a criminal from society. But one of the reasons one might not cryogenically freeze is because of the impact it might have on your friends and family if you're not a criminal. So you're a nice guy and they like you. But let's say, for example, today I'm in a car accident and I'm rushed to hospital and the doctor says, look, the damage here is beyond our capacity to fix, but his brain's intact. He has multiple organ failure, but we could freeze him. And it's the sort of injury that one day will allow us to unfreeze him and fix him. We think there's a good probability of that. And they don't say that to me because I'm lying in a coma, but they say this to my family. And my family has to make this decision. Now, in a cut and dried case of I'm in a car accident, I die, they can mourn and grieve and move on with their lives. But in this case, they're not going to see me potentially for a long time. They don't know how long. They may never see me again, perhaps because I'll be frozen longer than they're alive, or perhaps I will just never be able to be unfrozen. Perhaps the technology to unfreeze me never gets developed, or perhaps my stasis fails, but they don't know any of this. So they're stuck in a state of grieving, not grieving. Am I dead? Am I alive? That's a metaphysical question, but an emotional question is how should my family feel? And you might say that it's a sort of torture. Uh, it's a torture that they would suffer not if I died. It would depend a lot on... <laughs> This thing, the individuals, like some people may think, oh, it's, you know, my father is not dead. He's 
cryopreserved. So I still live with the hope that we'll come back and this helps me to deal with the situation. But to other people, it might be torture. I guess the decision, you know, somebody should be able to give directives about what they want to be done with them before they find themselves in this situation. But yeah, assuming they haven't done that, they had this testament written, they should, the, the decision should be up to the family. But I think also that even if you decided to keep the person cryopreserved, they should be given the right to live as, as if the person were dead legally. That means that a widow uh, or the woman married to a you know, cryopreserved person should be allowed to remarry and um, the children should be able to get the inheritance because that would allow them to, to move on. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, if we weren't sure that the person in the cryopreserved state could be brought back into existence within a reasonable amount of time, say not 10 years, 20 years, people should, their family um, should be allowed to, to move on because, yeah, psychologically it's important for them and, you know, practically. Of course, it, it could be a problem that the person came back and said, oh, where is all the money I saved or why did you remarry? And who are these people? So that could be quite complicated. But again, I think that the person overall would be happy about being alive again. I guess this happened maybe in the past with people in war. They disappeared. And sometimes we didn't know if they disappeared. And then sometimes they came back after several years and things had changed. It's definitely traumatic. I can imagine. I would still be happy if it were me. I would still be happy to see my family. And, and being alive, it would be complicated to find a new balance, but I think it wouldn't be impossible. Well, Francesca, I want to say thank you for an absolutely delightful conversation. It's so nice to probe the depths of what our future could hold for us. And I think you've done it with an absolute aplomb. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a very fun conversation. <laughs>